Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. speaker today is David Lewis. David has been following the Dharma path for over 40 years and has a degree in comparative religious studies. He attended his first retreat in the Tibetan Shambhala tradition at the age of 17 a few years ago <laughs> and has been uh, practicing the pasta meditation since moving to San Francisco 25 years ago. He's a longtime member of the Gay Buddhist Fellowship and also leads a weekly sitting group for seniors every Friday morning. David's graduate Spirit Rock Meditation Center's dedicated practitioners program and has been on the teaching team for Spirit Rock retreats. Uh, today we will hear part two in his series on the paramis. David, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here this morning. Um, some of you may or may not have been here last month and I did part one of the paramis. The paramis, or the paramitas in Sanskrit, are um, um, known as the Ten Perfections. And they're practices and intentions that we can uh, use in our everyday lives. Last month, um, if you missed it, I talked about um, um, Dana, uh, Sila, and renunciation. Donna's generosity, Sila's virtue, and renunciation. And uh, this month I was going to talk about uh, the next three or four on the list, which would be wisdom, energy, patience, and truthfulness. But uh, last month I got kind of overwhelmed just talking about three, so can't promise you we're going to get all the way through all ten paramitas. I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> and I started as I was doing research for this part, uh, for this talk, um, I really kept coming back to wisdom, the first of them. So mostly I, I think that's what I want to talk about today is, is wisdom. And I might do it in a slightly different way than I approached it last month. The Buddha um, did not offer a belief system. And that's hard for a lot of us Westerners because we're used to viewing um, spirituality and religion and philosophy as something we believe or we don't believe in or buy into or don't buy into. Uh, and the Buddha really discouraged that. He said, once you have views and opinions, once you have beliefs about something, 
that closes all kinds of doors to possibility. So the Buddha um, offered practices, very practical practices, practices to, um, to help us deal with suffering and dissatisfaction in our lives and practices to optimize skillful behavior which leads to happiness in our lives. Buddhism is a very practical uh, path. I don't even say religion. It's a path. It's, for most people, it's something you do. The three core practices that the Buddha offered were um, two of them I talked about last month. Dana, or generosity. Sila, or virtue. And bhavana, or meditation. So in uh, Asia, where most uh, traditional lifelong people who are born into Buddhism uh, practice, uh, the vast majority of, of people that we refer to as Buddhists, they might not even call themselves Buddhists, uh, might not meditate. It's a thing more for uh, uh, monastics in Asia. But they do practice every day dana and sila generosity and uh, virtue. They try to um, have good, skillful behavior, practice kindness and compassion, and also in uh, countries uh, that are traditionally Buddhist, Burma, Thailand, um, Tibet, uh, the community of practitioners uh, supports the monastic system, and that's generosity. One way that they show generosity is you know, every day in Thailand, the, the monks go out with their um, with their begging bowls, and uh, people line up along the roads and put food into the bowls. And it's a practice. It's uh, not only um, a very practical thing of feeding the monks who are not allowed to feed themselves, uh, but it's a daily practice of generosity. It's considered a core practice. So um, there's nothing in, in any of the Buddha's suttas that requires you to meditate, or for that matter, to practice dana or sila, but they're all recommended. So as I said last week, I, or last month, I talked about generosity and, and virtue. And today, in the context of the next parami on the list, wisdom, um, I'd like to talk some about meditation, because they're closely related, if not the same thing in Buddhist practice. I just want to say one thing about this idea of practice is that it's, um, it's something that I'd like you really to um, consider incorporating in your life, you know, some aspect of dana, sila, or meditation. A teacher of mine said that um, trying to understand the Dharma or, or appreciate the Dharma as a belief system is like perpetually reading the menu and never eating the food. <laughs> so, you know, if you've been eating, if you've been reading the menu for a few years, as I did for many years at Buddhist practice, I read books, I listened to Dharma talks, I was reading the menu. Uh, try the food. Try Dana, Sila, and Bhavana. Generosity, virtue, meditation. Wisdom in Buddhism, um, in, this, in this practice of practice, path of practice, is not the way we think about wisdom in the West. It's not an accumulated store of knowledge. Wisdom is an innate, intuitive seeing of the nature of things, um, which is dharma or dhamma. One, one definition of the, there's a lot of definitions of dharma, but the two main ones are um, fundamentally the nature of the way things are, um, and the other is um, the accumulated teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha's teachings are, are dharma. But the context I'm using is the nature of things. So wisdom, quite simply in Buddhism, is seeing the nature of things. And 
In the Buddha's teaching, that includes the three characteristics, um, which are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. I gave a talk a while back about the three characteristics. It's the nature of things. It's the nature of being human. It's a, a, a great deal of life is, is fundamentally unsatisfactory, and that steers our behavior, mostly unconsciously, as we're responding to unsatisfactoriness in our life. We want more of what we like, and we want less of what we don't like. We want to optimize the pleasant. It seems quite natural. We want to optimize the pleasant, and we want to, um, to decondition or push away the unpleasant. But the very act of, of, of doing that, of responding, of reacting to pleasant and unpleasant in such a reactive way, the Buddha taught creates more suffering in our lives. Second characteristic is uh, anicca or, or um, impermanence. And that might be a little bit easier to wrap our minds around and realize, yeah, everything changes. Um, we're born, we get old, we get sick, we die, we lose our friends, we move, we change jobs, the grass grows. And the third characteristic is anatta, not self, and um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a, in a bit. Another um, uh, another fundamental uh, dharma or uh, nature of thing is the Four Noble Truths. Uh, so wisdom uh, recognizes the Four Noble Truths uh, to be true. Um, so wisdom is very closely related to right understanding, which is um, a factor in the Eightfold Path. So. Um, Wisdom can almost, almost be thought of as a verb, as well as a noun in Buddhism. Understanding things um, on a daily basis, on a momentary basis, understanding our experience in the context of uh, the three characteristics and the Four Noble Truths. It's also defined as discernment. So there's three types of wisdom, um, probably more than three, but I'll talk about three briefly. The first is conceptual wisdom, and that's the, that's the wisdom um, that we're most familiar with in the West. That's conceptual wisdom is what we get from books and listening to Dharma talks and um, thinking about the pros and cons of uh, various points of view and making a choice and having views and opinions. Um, it comes quite naturally to us, and it's probably what we're most comfortable with. But the Buddha was skeptical about this kind of wisdom. He's skeptical, he warned us against views and opinions, which is a fairly radical concept. Um, and again, the Buddha said that once we have views and opinions, we close the doors on um, um, considering it might be otherwise. In other words, we become narrow-minded when we have views and opinions. Second kind of wisdom is the wisdom of practice. And that's um, when we take, uh, take a, something like um, impermanence, Buddha's teaching on impermanence, and apply it to our own experience. Like, how does this work for me? Um, and one way that we do that when we, uh, when we meditate, even here Sunday morning at GBF, is we sit in meditation and we watch our mind. Notice what's going on. And probably the first thing that you notice, if you're paying attention, is that everything changes. This thought leads to that thought, leads to another thought, then there's a bodily sensation, and then that bodily sensation goes away, and then we hear a sound, and then there's another thought. It's just a process of very rapid change, meditating. It's largely based on sense contact. <clears throat> the Buddha said, in, in, the Buddha taught that in addition, in, in addition to the five senses, I know you've heard this before, in addition to the five senses, the mind is the sixth sense. So thoughts are, it's like sounds arising in our experience. 
We don't have to take them any more seriously. So that's the wisdom of practice. And then there's the wisdom of realization. And wisdom of realization is clear knowing. Knowing something intuitively. Knowing something from your gut. And that arises out of practice. Practice is volitional. It's something we decide to do. Um, realization is um, intuitive. It comes to us. You can't really make realization happen, but you can set the conditions for it to arise, and it will come at the right time. The wisdom of realization is also called insight. Um, mindfulness meditation is uh, sometimes referred to, especially in my tradi the tradition I uh, practice in, as insight meditation. And if you think of the word insight, it's, it's seeing within, it's understanding ourselves. So all of this is about not only understanding the nature of reality as impermanent and, and unsatisfactory and, and uh, not self, but it's understanding um, how we respond to it. <clears throat> and understanding ourselves as unsatisfactory, impermanent, and not-self. So that's why um, wisdom uh, and this way of uh, gaining wisdom through practice rather through, than through views and opinions um, has been called against the stream. Uh, there's even a school of Buddhism now that's referred to as uh, against the stream uh, because it's basically against the way it's, it's counterintuitive to the way we do things in the West. So it takes it's a little bit of a challenge. It takes some energy. It takes uh, energy and it takes patience. Energy and patience along with wisdom are paramis on the list of paramis. So, um, it might be hard for us to trust as Westerners, and I think sometimes that's what makes meditation hard for people. The father of science, modern science, Sir Isaac Newton said, truth is the offspring of silence and unbroken meditation. Sir Isaac Newton. <coughs> Truth is the offspring of silence and unbroken meditation. And I ran across another quote that I really like that I couldn't quite fit in, but I just really wanted to share to you. There's a, uh, I believe it's 13th century, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, 13th century Christian uh, mystical uh, text called The Cloud of Unknowing. Um, we don't know who wrote it. They're anonymous. Uh, but it's a uh, British uh, 13th century Christian mystic who said, And so I urge you, go after experience rather than knowledge. On account of pride, knowledge may often deceive you, but this gentle, loving affection will not deceive you. Knowledge tends to breed conceit, but love builds. Knowledge is full of labor, but love full of rest. It's very Buddhist, I think. Um, so the, um, when we look at the Christian mystics, um, we have a lot in common with what the Buddha taught. Uh, you know, it's not something magical. It's just something intuitive. It's an intuitive understanding of our experience rather than knowledge. The same distrust of views and opinions and belief and dogma, basically. Mistrust of dogma. <coughs> uh, here's a quote on effort. Again, this is one of the paramis we're talking about today. Effort or energy with wisdom is the healthy desire to know and understand whatever arises without any preferences for the outcome. And that's really a beautiful description of uh, what we do when we meditate. 
I'm sorry we don't do instruction, meditation instruction more at GBF because um, for me in my practice and even after 40 years of practice I love to be kind of reminded what to do to meditate. But one of the things we do or one of the options is to simply sit, pay attention to our experience without adding anything to it or taking anything away from it. This is insight. This is an inner looking. We look within. That allows us to see our ca the causes, motivations, and effects of what we're doing. What we're doing is karma. Action. Karma is action. And, and to respond to that rather than to react. Fundamentally, we learn to connect with life right where it touches us in the moment. And that changes all the time. A thought, a thought, a bodily sensation, a sound. Um, so the goal is uh, to become more mindful. Not just when we sit in meditation on Sunday mornings at GBF on our cushions or chairs, but to become more mindful in everyday life. And to um, let the practice support us. gotta say it's easier to do it on the cushion in meditation with a group. Um, I've had um, people tell me, oh well, meditation is really hard for me so I just try to be mindful in everyday life. Um, in my experience is just the opposite. In my, being mindful in everyday life is, is more challenging than sitting down and focusing on exactly what's happening right in the moment. <clears throat> but it's also my experience, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, that um, if we have a fairly consistent meditation practice over you know, a period of time, not necessarily a very long period of time, mindfulness starts to become automatic in our everyday life. The practice really does support us. It certainly is true for me. The practice has changed me, changed the way I respond to my uh, mental habits, my psychological habits. Mindfulness is not about getting rid of thoughts, and it's not even about thinking, think, thinking differently. It's about, I just referred to, it's about changing our mental habits, or psychological habits. So um, we start by paying attention to what our habits are, without being judgmental about them. There's a, a strong element of compassion here. Because very often when we, um, you may have experienced this, when we sit in meditation, we pay attention to what comes up. Um, sometimes we're slightly horrified. We all have murderous impulses. <laughs> Fortunately, most of us don't act on them. Um, we just notice what's coming up without adding anything, without taking anything away. That's the first step. And then we try not to follow our thoughts. I recently read a quote from a Tibetan teacher that said, meditation is simply not intentionally following thoughts. So, um, if nothing else, try that when you meditate, not following your thoughts. It means that just like, um, as, as, as a sixth sense, our mind produces thoughts just like uh, sounds happen, or just like bodily sensations happen. They're all just phenomena. Bubbles of phenomena, like bubbles rising up from the, the bottom of the sea and popping to the surface and then disappearing. Um, thoughts are no different than sounds, bodily sensations, smells, tastes. They come and go. They're impermanent. They all exhibit the three characteristics. <clears throat> the other thing we can do in meditation, uh, and there's a lot of different practices, which is another reason why I like instruction in meditation is people offer alternatives. You get bored with one practice, you can do another practice. Another thing we do is cultivate skillful mind states and decondition unskillful mind states. So um, there's ways of deconditioning anger, fear, 
resentment, boredom, loneliness, just like we can condition, we can work with happiness, joy, love, gratitude. Uh, it's a practice. You cultivate skillful mind states and decondition unskillful mind states. Mind states. Energy, again, one of the paramis, along with wisdom, energy is the resource that resists the pull of psychological habits. So, when we're meditating, or in everyday life, when we notice a psychological habit, say anger arising, um, if we notice it, if we recognize it, uh, then we can make the choice, and this takes some energy, we can make the choice not to go down that path, not to follow it. When it arises, it's present. We don't deny it. There's nothing wrong with anger. There's nothing wrong with fear. They come up, they pop up all of their own. They're conditioned phenomena. But we don't have to follow them. We don't have to feed them. So this is a challenging concept for, especially for beginning meditators. Um, because we think, we think that uh, we're not supposed to be feeling those things. We think if we're good Buddhists and if we're good meditators, we shouldn't get angry or we shouldn't be fearful. We shouldn't have um, any unskillful feelings or thoughts. Um, but I can tell you, um, I've heard the Dalai Lama say it, and it's my experience too, that uh, we get angry. And when we get angry, um, if we're not mindful, we slip into our uh, reactive responses. And that's an interesting thing to observe as well, just to see, to know what our reactive responses are. Sometimes just recognizing what our reactive responses to uh, negative feelings or thoughts are, um, cause them to dissolve. Like, oh, there I go doing that thing. Um, I've often uh, referred to, I've, I've, like to use the example of reading the morning newspaper. I used to be a real news junkie. And I still check in the New York Times at some point every day. Uh, but it brings up a lot of stuff for me. Uh, very often I get angry. Very often I feel despair. Especially in the past week. Well, it's been a bad couple of weeks and in world news. There's boats sinking in the Mediterranean and earthquakes in Nepal and Young girls kidnapped in Nigeria and Baltimore. Just curious, I'm just checking in. You don't have to say anything, but <clears throat> if I say the word Baltimore, uh, do views and opinions come up for you? <laughs> I've heard so many views and opinions. Especially if you're born there. Sorry? Especially if you're born there. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> so, uh, it just goes to show that that's what the mind does. You know, a trigger like Baltimore uh, brings up a lot of stuff. So, what's important is not the stuff arising. Um, that's conditioned. That's based on um, our our mental habits and our upbringing and what we've been taught. Uh, what matters is how we respond to it. Our conditioned habits and responses. Wisdom discriminates between skillful and unskillful mind states and intentions. Energy gives us the resources to set boundaries and act on them. So a lot of this Mindfulness practice, meditation practice, is about setting boundaries. Do I want to go there? Do I want to follow that thought? Or not? Is it skillful or is it unskillful? That's discrimination. That's wisdom. Choosing between the skillful and the unskillful. We don't use good and bad 
heavy judgments in Buddhism. But we talk about the skillful and the unskillful. The skillful being what leads to freedom, liberation, happiness, and unskillful what is, is that which leads to suffering. And a lot of our intentional chosen responses to the world are unskillful. It takes a while to sort that out and see that. It's useful to learn our unskillful habits. Our, the, 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 the most obvious example of that is our addictions. You know, things we choose to do, heavily conditioned habits that are unskillful. Might not, doesn't necessarily have to be substances, it might be work, uh, it might be relationships, it might be uh, our smartphones, it might be online pornography. All these things that we um, originally did to distract ourselves and to, to, to make our world a little bit happier and to make ourselves feel better eventually can become unskillful. It's an interesting place to start with our addictions. Patience is the next part of me. I'm just going to say a few words about patience. But in terms of what I've been talking about, our mindfulness practice, being in the moment, paying attention to what's going on, patience is the acceptance part. It's the, it's, patience is the acceptance of, of something, say maybe anger, without adding anything to it or, or pushing it away. That takes some patience. Because our automatic response, if we feel an unpleasant feeling, is to turn away from it, right? to do something, maybe do one of our addictions or just push it away and pretend to stifle it, pretend like it's, it's not happening. Uh, patience allows us to stand under a feeling and truly feel it and experience it uh, without adding anything to it. Patience, patience is useful in a traffic jam. <laughs> right? Our conditioned response, our reactive response is to get pissed off, be mad, blow the horn, get frustrated. But whether you do that or not, whether you go down that road or not, you're still stuck in traffic. Nothing changes. So if you can have some patience, apply some patience to your life, uh, you're still stuck in traffic, but your mind's not suffering nearly as much. So that's the difference between the first arrow and the second arrow. That's the difference between pain and suffering. Pain is being stuck in traffic. Suffering is being pissed off about it. Patience is what allows us to, to stand under an uncomfortable feeling or sensation um, and not go into our reactive responses. So, I want to give a personal example, um, which I don't do very often, but um, I don't want I don't want to present the paramis as something that's kind of academic or, or something to believe or something to understand. It's a, the paramis are a practice that can be really helpful. Uh, some of you know that I'm HIV positive and have been for 25 years. And uh, when I first became positive, it was, it was fairly early on in the epidemic, and I was pretty sure I was going to die. In fact, I, my first doctor told me I was going to die within a year. So I was terrified. And then I, uh, I moved to San Francisco basically to get better treatment for HIV and I got involved in the whole AIDS movement from ACT UP to founding Project Inform to treatment advocacy. And I was living here at the height of the epidemic and I lost um, most of my friends, most of the people that I got to know initially uh, when I moved here. Um, were also HIV positive, and a good, good many of them died. And that was terrifying. So um, 
I have a lot of conditioning around fear and HIV. But over the years, it became a chronic manageable condition, and uh, I quite easily slipped into denial about it. Uh, but that, that fear is still there someplace. And every time uh, I get a bad cold or something happens, it, it comes up. Not every time, but frequently. So about a little more than a month ago, um, my uh, I, I essentially I became allergic to one of the drugs in my drug regimen that I've been taking for about six years. And it made me really uncomfortable. I was actually in a certain amount of pain for about a month. And I couldn't change my regimen right away because it's not that easy to do, especially when you've been positive for 25 years and you've taken everything else. So I had to stay with this regimen that was causing me pain until I could get it changed. I did eventually get it changed. So during that month, when I was in pain and I was wondering what was going to happen, there were, there were three kind of conditioned habitual, uh, there were th three lines of thinking that I was really tempted to go down. First one was that they're not going to find another regimen for me and I'm going to have to live in pain like this for the rest of my life. Second one was, um, they're going to find a new drug regimen that I can go on and it's going to, to, to work fine and it's going to um, keep the virus down and, um, and I'll feel a lot better and everything will be okay. And the third one was that I'm going to um, switch to a new drug regimen, it's not going to work and I'm going to die fairly soon. On any given day, um, all three of those presented themselves as a, as, as a uh, line of discursive thinking and fantasy and thought that I could, that I could follow <coughs> if I chose to, chose to. And I was very grateful when I noticed, that, and I know this is due to my practice, my meditation practice, I was very grateful to notice that when, I, when any one of those temptations arose, even the one that said everything's going to be okay, I said, well, yeah, maybe that's true, but I don't have to, it's, there's no point in me following that path. There's no point in me following that line of thought because I don't know if it's true or not. I can't predict the future. It's interesting to notice how desperately we all want to know the future. <laughs> and we can't. So um, staying in the present takes some patience and some energy. So that's one way that my, my meditation practice supported me because when I meditate, I notice mind states arising and I choose whether they're skillful or unskillful and whether I'm going to follow them, or follow them or not. And when I'm on the cushion, more often than not, even skillful ones, I choose not to follow in order to have some peace. But one night, in the midst of this month, when I'm congratulating myself on my wisdom, how well I'm dealing with uh, this drama in my life. One night, I just got washed over with fear. It just came up out of nowhere like a volcano. And uh, my response to that was, was conditioned by my practice, my Dharma practice also. My response to that fear was, uh, I really wanted to just give myself over to it and say, oh my God, I'm just completely deluded, I'm going to die. This is it. But my next response came very quickly was, oh, this is just fear. This is what fear feels like. This is a conditioned habit of mine that's very familiar. Something goes wrong and with, and I start reflecting on the fact that I have this life-threatening disease and I'm taking handfuls of pills and fear arises. I know that feeling. And so I just stood under it. Just let it be fear. This is what fear feels like. And within about an hour or two, it went away. And I can tell you that 10 years ago, that fear would have lasted for the whole month. So, um, 
the way my practice worked with standing underneath fear is I saw it in the context of the three characteristics. And I wasn't doing all this intellectually. It just kind of automatically happened because I meditate. I saw the discomfort of it. This is really unpleasant. And it's a great practice when you're experiencing an unpleasant sensation or feeling or you're caught up in, in some sort of trauma. To just put your hand on your heart and say, this is dukkha. This is unpleasant. And have some compassion for yourself. This hurts. Second characteristic is impermanence. Okay. I know how fear works. It comes up. It goes away. It's impermanent. This fear is most likely not going to be permanent because it's never been permanent in the past. And the third characteristic is not self. This fear is simply my conditioned response. This is something that I learned 25 years ago. And whatever can be conditioned can be unconditioned. This, this fear is a mental habit of mine that I don't need to follow. It doesn't need to rule me. It's not inherently me. It's a mental habit. We call them sankaras in Buddhism. Psychological habits, mental habits. So um, that was a certain amount of comfort to me in my worst moment in the last moment. It hurts, but it's not permanent. It's not inherently mine. I went to sleep that night, woke up the next morning, everything was okay. At least in my delusive state, everything was okay. So, um, I'm not claim, claiming, uh, I'm certainly not claiming to be wise, because I certainly don't feel that way. I feel very much like a beginner in practice. But, I know how my practice has supported me, and I really appreciate how, uh, how that showed up for me in everyday life, in real life, uh, in the past month. Uh, and I'm very grateful for the practice. Uh, I have a lot of passion for Buddha Dharma and for uh, meditation uh, because of what I intuitively know to be true based on my, my own experience, not on my belief based on my own experience. So I'd like to uh, wind up by reading a couple of, uh, a poem and a quote, um, both of which, I know at least one you've heard before because I've shared it, I think Tom shared it once. Um, and the poem you might have heard before, but they bear repeating. The poem's called Daikini Speaks by Jennifer Wellwood. The Dakini speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken our secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seemed cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion is exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. And related to that, is a quote from Jeff Foster that I just love. You will lose everything, your money, your power, your fame, your success, 
perhaps even your memories. Your looks will go, loved ones will die, your body will fall apart. Everything that seems permanent is impermanent and will be smashed. Experience will gradually, or not so gradually, strip away everything that it can strip away. Waking up means facing this reality with open eyes and no longer turning away. <coughs> but right now, we stand on sacred and holy ground. For that which will be lost has not yet been lost. And realizing this is the key to unspeakable joy. Whoever and whatever is in your life right now has not yet been taken away from you. This may sound trivial, obvious, like nothing, but it really is the key to everything. The why and the how and the wherefore of existence. Impermanence has already rendered everything and everyone around you so deeply holy and significant and worthy of your heartbreaking gratitude. Loss has already transfigured your life into an altar. So thank you for your kind attention. And letting me talk about me for a change. Thank you, David. We have time for a few questions. Or comments or reflections. Please, David. I've been through an experience with my dog lately. <clears throat> I found out six weeks ago that he had cancer. And um, my dog is like my closest friend in the world. And it's always, I mean, it's just a wonderful soul. And um, <coughs> I was completely devastated. I, I, for several days, I could not block him without crying, having tears in my eyes. I had this vision of his dying and being lost. And so, anyway, the thing that sort of got me through this was um, educating myself about his disease. And, and finding out, and reading up, and finding out that he wasn't actually just going to die. And it's like, I was expecting to go in there and die. He was going to be dead on the living room floor the next day or something. He is not dead. I mean. I, I was just having to adjust to the fact that he has his disease. And, and it's like, it's actually more information. I, I got more information about him. And he seems to be in better spirits than ever. He's happier. I mean, he's going through chemotherapy. He's handling it great. And I'm like giving him these pills and stuff. He doesn't even know what he's going through. But anyway, it's just my. <clears throat> understanding of I don't know what I'm saying except that I'd sort of intellectualized this whole relationship that I'd had with him and now I have more information about it and a better understanding of my truth. I mean, I'm, literally he is going to die but I'm going to die. I don't know. It's just like it's, yeah. the whole thing's shifting. Well, and you're having feelings too. Of uh, what? You're, you're having feelings too. I am. So um, I just say, I say honor those, um, honor the. I'm sure you're worried and, and, and concerned, and but the one thing you said that, um, that that really rang true to me is you said your dogs, you know, seems to be feeling fine despite the fact of what's going on. Um, I can relate to how your dog might be feeling because that's one one thing I reminded myself of in the middle of my big drama about even living with some pain because of medications making me uncomfortable. So if I sat very still and closed my eyes and just checked in with exactly what was happening in the moment, as dogs are good at doing, dogs are great at being in the moment, <laughs> um, there was nothing wrong. So no matter what's going on in your life, this is true for everybody, no matter what you know, great dramas are going on in your life, Sometimes it's, it's, it's efficacious to, to take a deep breath, check in what's actually going on right now. Is there pain? Is there, uh, is there suffering? Is there worry? And if we just take a deep breath and check in with just our, our senses, what's actually going on in the moment, there's nothing wrong. 
we all have these stories about what's not right in our lives, right? Maybe it's a relationship or a job or we've been evicted from our house or we don't have enough money or we're hungry and we want lunch, whatever, it's, whatever it is. Um, we tend to, uh, we, we tend to uh, gravitate towards what's wrong. But if we really check in, in the moment there's nothing wrong. So... And yes, we're all mortal. <clears throat> Dog's mortal, and, and you and I are. Uh, and we're going to die. Uh, but as that last quote I said, that we that, that that's a that's a cause for gratitude and love in the moment. So love him up, or her, him or her, your dog. Love him up. Maybe one last short one, Benjamin. Yeah, just. Uh... I appreciate that you talked about the Buddhist uh, perspective on views and opinions, at least holding on to them. <clears throat> and I appreciated that you talked about impermanence. But I think that frequently we think we recognize impermanence, but I think it's hard to recognize that views and opinions are basically our attempt to create permanence. And that perhaps that's why the Buddha was so uh, willing to caution us about that. Yeah, thank you for that. That's so true. Views and opinions, uh, rites and rituals, are um, our attempts to create permanence, which is a delusion, right? Yeah. Great thing to recognize. Thank you for that. David, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, so Donna is uh, a word for generosity. Yes. Eloquently spoke up. Um, it's what sustains our sangha. So uh, please, as you leave, uh, find the Donna Bowl, contribute what you can. Suggested donation is around ten dollars. Yes, uh, my name is Mike, and I'm the host this morning. And um, in addition to the Donna Bowl, there um, are some uh, plates with uh, fruit and cookies and uh, a savory. Uh, Cheese, twisty thing. Anyway, um, so and if you um, drink tea, please put your cup in the uh, basin with soapy water. Michael. Hi guys, uh, my name is Michael. I'm on the uh, GBF board of directors, and a suggestion has come up for us to make a contribution uh, toward. Earthquake relief in Nepal and humanitarian aid. And uh, we don't really have a straightforward way of polling the Sangha, so this is our best opportunity. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, I just wanted to get a show of hands of people who feel like that's a good idea or support that idea. Okay, great. And the second thing is um, the organization that we would contribute to. I made a suggestion. Um, the SEVA Foundation, which is a, a Berkeley-based organization. Uh, they're known for restoring sight uh, to blind people, particularly in the Himalayas, uh, but they are conducting a, a drive right now for earthquake relief. Uh, but if anybody else has other organizations that they want to suggest, we're very open to hearing about that. And then lastly, um, I just want to add the SEVA Foundation has uh, committed to providing 100% of all donations directly to service, and they've been, you know, on the ground in Nepal uh, for many years. And between Nepal and Southern India, largely restored sites of uh, over a million people and over a million cattle operations. They have connections to high level people. So the last issue would be. Um, 
Um, so just to piggyback on that, if anybody's interested in giving a, uh, you know, an individual donation and has not yet, um, there was a good New York Times article that listed several organizations, and it had a link to PayPal, who has um, agreed not to charge any fees for, you know, like about a dozen organizations that they list on their site. I'll go ahead and post that to our Facebook page and to our uh, Yahoo group email list. Any other announcements? I have a request. Uh, yes. Um, we're, we're in need of uh, <coughs> one or two more um, individuals to volunteer as hosts um, for um, occasionally filming for hosts who are kind of vocal. Um, it doesn't involve a lot of work. It's basically plugging in the hot water kettle, seeing that there are treats available for the social hour, and uh, circulating the bottle. And um, it's a good way to give back to the Sangha. So if anybody is available to do that, please speak to me during the session. And it's only once every two months? Um, on a regular basis, if there are regular uh, slots, it's once every two months, but we also have a need for people to do just occasionally on film. Great, thank you. We have time for one last poll, which I was going to do anyway. I didn't realize we were going to do that. Uh, so David mentioned um, his interest in uh, or yearning for um, instruction before the meditation or leading into the meditation periodically. Um, other people have mentioned this, um, and what we would do is, if we were to do that, it would just be conducted by one of our speakers who is willing and versed in that sort of thing. Um, so just by a show of hands, would anyone be interested in that on a periodic basis, maybe once every six weeks or a couple of months? Okay. Would anyone like to see it more frequent than that? If you, would anyone like no instruction ever whatsoever? I mean, and feel free to raise your hand. I mean, it's, you know, some people just like, hey, I come here for the silence and stuff. There's, um, there's a brief instruction, and then there's instruction that keeps dropping in throughout the whole period. It just sends me into rage. <laughs> I, I, I'm happy to. Uh, That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So who would like just a lead in? Okay, I think that's the majority. Okay, so that's how we would frame it if, if we do that. Any other comments before we? Because I think that sounds like something we could we could do periodically. Yes, couple, uh, I, I particularly um, appreciate that because I think I've been coming about three years, and my perception is that um, the group has a sense of itself, uh, kind of, uh, of people having a certain, shall I say, understanding or experience with meditation. But as new people come in, they don't, and I'm one of those people, and I'm periodically bewildered by. You know, there's a need, I think, for more education, and this would be would serve that. Great, thank you. Is, does the website have any tips? <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't. However, um, I have a series of five guided meditations, professionally produced and everything, that are uh, PLR, private label rights, meaning they can be, mm -hmm. you know, uh, distributed. So I'll see about getting those up. On the site, they're not particularly Buddhist, but they might be some. But I, you know, in my searches, I, maybe I'll find something else that we could put on there. That's a great suggestion. Any last comments before we wrap up? Uh, it might sound like a crazy idea, but I'm just put it out there. I think when we have group discussions, uh -huh. to have a recording, a recording of guided meditation of some choice. Oh, for a group discussion. Yeah, yeah. recording mm -hmm. group discussion. Idea. Okay. Any? Yes, David. Um, one thing I'd just like to bring up is that I've heard different people comment on this is the right way to meditate, and this is not the right way. And you know, I sort of get turned off by that, because I think there's a lot of ways that people yeah. meditate that work for them. I've been taught many ways, so I would just like to mention that, not to make judgments about different approaches. Right. And that yeah, we can lead in with that. Say so there's just one. There's no know, right way or wrong way. Okay, great. Group non-denomination. Yes. <laughs> we do need to wrap up, but yes. Just one quick uh, suggestion. We talked about this briefly in the past. You know, the major kind of focus, group focus, 
for uh, instruction and meditation, etc., is the yearly retreat. But not everybody can go on that, and and I I would wonder if, uh, as I said, I, I know I've asked about this before, and I think others have too. If say a couple times in the year there would be a kind of day of meditation or day of instruction, or maybe just not a full day, even a half day, even just here, like some Sunday afternoon, where you know you could have instruction, you could have maybe some discussion, you know, but. Um, I'm, and I've gone on the retreats and I appreciate them and the effort that goes into them, but I think uh, not everybody can go. You mean like do a day retreat here? Yeah, or yeah. Just like a city What's retreat here? Okay, thank you. Great, thanks everyone. Uh, let's gather in a circle for our education. As we gather afterwards for our social period, please make Richard feel welcome. Well, Richard, thank you for joining us. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness, which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.